0: Hello, this is Bill Munnhausen with another edition of What Makes Sense, and it is the last episode in a series that I've been doing about worldview. The reason I've been taking so much time on this is I had this series of evidences in the form of one-minute audio clips that I did a few years ago, and uh, I wanted to relate them to um, the idea that worldview really has to meet somewhere in reality. It's where worldview touches on reality that everything matters because if you have a worldview that has no relationship with what is real, it's not much of a worldview really, is it? A worldview has to be meaningful. In the world, we have these competing worldviews. We have the atheistic worldview, which relies on evolution, the idea that nothing somehow expanded to form everything and the much more rational, reasonable, experiential idea that there is a supreme being in the the universe, actually outside of the universe, who created the world we live in. And the world we live in has all kinds of evidences of design as a result of that. So we can easily look at evidences of design and recognize that this worldview, the biblical worldview, makes sense. So with that said, let's go on to another clip again this is the last in the series so listen up one of the perks of running a museum is access to old artifacts in this case a fascinating 1937 travel book by American George T. B. Davis seeing prophecy fulfilled in Palestine. The Bible records that the land was given to the Jews by God 4,000 years ago. Then the Jews were exiled, but God promised restoration. We've seen the prophecy unfold in our lifetime. The author wrote, The fulfillment of Old Testament predictions proves beyond any doubt the divine inspiration of God's word. God is working wondrously in Palestine and surely wants people to know what he is doing. Not only Arabs, but atheists also oppose the tiny nation of Israel for one reason. they believe the destruction of Israel proves the Bible to be wrong and therefore validates their own worldview. That's why they oppose Israel. But the continuation of Israel is a testimony that God is alive and will prevail. Can you think of one, even one other nation or people group, that lost their nation for 2,000 years or any number of years and reclaimed it, Miraculously, it was given back to them by the most powerful nations on earth. It's unheard of, it's ridiculous, it's crazy, and it is what the Bible predicted, it's what God promised, and it's a testimony. And this testimony is something so dangerous to people who are atheists because they know that it's a profound evidence that these kinds of things don't happen but they are predicted in Scripture and they did happen. This is why most of the world is against the Jews or the people of Israel, not because there's anything intrinsically wrong with them or philosophically wrong with them. Their very existence is a threat to the atheistic worldview. They're very their prospering, not just their existence, their prospering is a threat to the atheistic worldview. It in fact I believe, is one of the many evidences that disproves atheism. There really does seem to be a supernatural power at work in the world uh, that is bringing things to fruition. I would even go farther, and this is probably a little off topic, but I would would say there is a supernatural power also, a demonic evil power that must be responsible for all of the death issuing thoughts of the left, of socialists and of communists. Sometime after this series, I'm gonna do a series on socialism and communism and explain how that worldview seems to produce death by the millions. Uh, It goes back to the national socialists in Germany during World War II who, who murdered millions of people. And it was part of their strategy of world domination And it's outrageous that whether it's the Soviet Union or Mao Zedong in China or Pol Pot in uh, Southeast Asia, all of these socialist dictators had to eliminate their enemies by force. All of it is a testimony in favor of God's ideas versus man ideas. So let's go on to another clip. Surprising as it may seem, insects provide some of the greatest challenges to the theory that evolution works through reproduction. One example is sterile female workers among ants. Darwin himself wrote, with the worker ant, we have an insect differing greatly from its parent, yet sterile so that it could never transmit modifications of structure or instinct to its progeny. If we assume that mutation caused these worker ants to be born different from their parents, how is the mutation proven to be useful and passed on to successive generations? Throw in the complication that only the queen ant produces offspring, how would a mutation in her sterile children get passed to future generations? We can all learn from the ant. Evolution attempts to explain individual variation, but can't explain the complex differentiation in ant colonies. If it wasn't for evolutionary philosophy, all scientists would believe that worker ants and queens were designed to fulfill their different roles. There are undoubtedly ways to rationalize the existence of worker ants, You could assume that a mutation happened millions of years ago that resulted in the worker ant, and that mutation has persisted. It's never either changed or gone away. It just stays there, so every generation, a queen ant can have worker ants. And those worker ants are an evolutionary dead end. The problem with that, well, gee, there's lots of problems with that, but one of the problems is how does the worker ant get his idea of his function? And that falls into that whole area we refer to as instinct. Uh, Somehow the worker ant knows his place in the ant society. He knows that his responsibility is to do certain functions, to do certain work, and he does that work diligently. He doesn't um, think in terms of doing something else. There was a whimsical little cartoon, probably, I'm thinking it might be Disney, but it might be somebody else, about an ant that decided to be independent. And that that ant, who would have been a worker ant, decided he was more artistically inclined. I, I forget exactly how it goes, but it has to do with his struggle to be an independent person in a colonial, um, instinct-driven world of the ant colony. And I don't exactly remember how it turned out for him. I'm sure there must have been some form of happy ending. But for real ants, there seems to be a static society. Nobody knows why they fulfill the functions they do, how they know to do it. It's just like the birds flying south in the the fall to get to warmer places. We understand why they'd want to go to warmer places. We don't understand how they anticipate that winter is coming and how they know where to go. Same thing with the monarch butterfly and their very elaborate... um, process of migrating and then coming back and Laying more eggs and creating larvae and migrating again. All of it is a mystery. Nobody has a good explanation It's almost as if it was designed to happen that way But evolutionists don't want to believe in design. Let's move on to another evidence Was it a comet or a rogue planet or supernova? Could any such object guide the Magi in the book of Matthew? A man named Rick Larson developed a theory. The Gospel wise men were probably wise in the knowledge of astronomy and prophecy. The Magi weren't referring to a particular object, but rather observations of the constellation Virgo the Virgin at the time of Jesus' birth. Larson used astronomy software to rediscover what the Magi saw. There are too many details to relate in a one minute message, but here's a teaser Revelation 12 records a great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with a the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations. That ruler is Jesus. A skeptic would say that the Bethlehem star is evidence that the Bible story isn't true. After all, stars don't move. They don't appear as any kind of an object that could help guide somebody. The the wise men from their far-off land that little manger in Bethlehem it doesn't make sense to people and they'd say well this is just an example of how it's just a fanciful mythological story I see it exactly the opposite I see the fact that the bible includes that kind of implausible story as evidence that it's a real story it's almost as if God inspired the writer to write that down And the writer probably didn't even know how to interpret it, didn't know how to prove it, wasn't even thinking of it as something to be proven, just something to be recorded. And it's an interesting detail that now in this age of amazing computer software and the ability to take astronomical observation, put it in a software product, make it back up thousands of years, and even look thousands of years into the future and figure out what was happening, what was happening at the time that Jesus was born and seeing that there could be signs in the heaven that could be used by wise astronomers to anticipate a great and glorious event. And that um, verse that's uh, indicated in Revelation uh, gives you an idea of what those astronomers might have been interpreting. So. I see the unusual stories of the Bible as strong evidence that this wasn't just made up by men who are trying to make the story seem plausible. They were just going with the story they were given. Regardless of the consequences, let the chips fall where they may. All right, let's go on to another clip. Radiometric dating is often used to justify ages of millions of years. The carbon dating method determines age by measuring radioactive carbon in a sample. Because radiocarbon decays rapidly, it can only be detected up to an age of about 50,000 years. Researchers decided to test this method by sending an unfossilized bone sample to a laboratory without revealing it was dinosaur bone. If the dinosaur died millions of years ago, no radiocarbon should be detected. The lab found radioactive carbon in the sample, proving that dinosaurs lived much more recently than evolution theory proposes. The faith of some scientists caused them to throw out evidence that refutes their beliefs. Billions of years is the magic used to justify evolutionary ideas, but the Bible indicates the Earth is a few thousand years old and so does carbon dating the dinosaur. Hard science instead of theory. There are several different methods of radiometric dating. And for some reason carbon dating is the uh, most commonly known probably because it's one of the most um, easily pronounceable. We all know what carbon is and so carbon dating is pretty simple to say. And people think that carbon dating dates things to be millions of years old, when in fact carbon dating is one of those unique methods that lets us date much more recent things. And the reason for that is radioactive carbon has a very short half-life, meaning it doesn't stay around very long. It deteriorates or decomposes or uh, goes away. It turns into some other element rather rapidly. And that's why we say radiocarbon dating is only good within about 50,000 years. 50,000 years sounds like a lot. But anyhow, one of the things about radiocarbon dating that a lot of people don't realize is that when you compare radiocarbon dates to historical dates, where you know what the age of it is based on history, there's always a variance. So even radiocarbon dating doesn't work accurately. It's known to have a deviance from reality. And um, people who use radiocarbon dating try to adjust for its inaccuracy. Uh, Of course, nobody knows what its inaccuracy is, because in the course of 50,000 years, Uh, environmental factors could affect the rate of decay. Um, The thing about these dinosaur bones, it's kind of um, not a documented case because people who, you know, these laboratories who do dating methods, they don't like to be tricked or fooled, so it kind of is done in secret but um, it is true that somebody submitted dinosaur bones that should be at least 65 million years old that should have no radiocarbon left in them and the laboratory found radiocarbon present. They'll make an excuse that it was contaminated recently after it was excavated, but it's, not, it's really more of an excuse than an evidence in itself. So the very evidence we use to produce to, to prove thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of years uh, seems to be flaky and unreliable and actually proves the opposite. So don't take it as seriously as you want to or think you ought to when somebody says something is 200 million years old. It is a speculative process. Here's another clip. An old Christmas story is that a little boy who's been naughty gets a lump of coal in his stocking. That's my Christmas segue to the geology of coal formation. The old evolutionary view is that coal forms over millions of years in peat bogs and swamps. We now understand that coal can be manufactured in a short amount of time using pretty ordinary processes of heat and pressure. The only reason it isn't done commercially is that natural coal is so abundant. Geologist Steve Austin wrote his doctoral thesis on coal formation based on his observation of floating logs in Spirit Lake after the eruption of Mount St. Helens. He proposed that more extensive log mats after a worldwide flood could result in rapid coal formation in just a few hundred years. So another old-ages concept gets debunked by modern science. Coal formation over millions of years is another one of those Evidences for evolution that has been established or proven to be false. Uh, It's been falsified. Um, A lot of people don't even know this, but during World War II, when the Germans were uh, running out of petroleum to power their war machines, they figured out a way to make artificial petroleum. So all of these so-called fossil fuels can be manufactured if, It's just more expensive to manufacture them than to let nature form them on its own. So, how long does it take for coal to form? Well, it can be reproduced in a number of hours in the laboratory. And petroleum can be manufactured in a way that it's useful, at least during during wartime, maybe not commercially useful. But all of these things that we thought took millions of years just don't and the more that science investigates the evidence of evolution and the evidence of old ages and millions of years the more they see loopholes in the process where things can happen much more rapidly all right let's move on a crucial aspect of government is to instill in the next generation our nation's governing principles and values judges too reflects current events in our formerly christian nation the people served the lord all the days of joshua but there arose another generation after them who knew not the lord they followed the gods of the nations around them bowed unto them and abandoned the lord the lord delivered them into the hands of spoilers so they could no longer stand against their enemies they were greatly distressed just as the lord said they would be nevertheless he sent them leaders who delivered them from their enemies but the people would not listen they turned quickly out of the way their fathers walked we are in a season of hope so think how you might teach values to the next generation. My parents immigrated to America because it was a land of hope. No, more than that, it was a land where hope had been realized. As the son of immigrants, I recognize two great characteristics of my adopted homeland, America. First is its Christian heritage, and second is its unique form of government, two characteristics which are deeply intertwined. As I listened to a brief radio message I crafted a few years ago about teaching the next generation, I realize how miserably we have failed. First, in the name of freedom, we banished the Christian God from every public schoolroom. The rationale is that we shouldn't force our faith on future generations. So we made sure that the next generation would be faithless, a generation without hope. We were influenced by people who told us religion was a crutch but didn't address whether our children might need such a support in hard times. After all, crutches aren't evil, are they? Crutches help you walk when you are injured. Crutches are an aid for overcoming. Would it be so bad, really, if our children loved God and loved their neighbor as themselves? Would the world be ruined if they rejected murder, dishonesty, and covetousness? When Americans decided it was wrong to convey Christianity to their children, they condemned their children to make life up without guidelines. They turned away from generations of experience and revelation in favor of personal trial and error with more trial and error than anyone should experience. But I'm not really advocating religion, rather I'm demanding that the God who created all things might have something to say about how you might live most successfully Why were Americans so stupid to trade that assurance for the profound uncertainty they now experience? And then there is government. The people who crafted the United States Constitution recognized that men were sinners. They didn't have to be religious to understand that. They simply had to be observant. They could see King George, a monarch of extraordinary power and wealth, who nevertheless was tempted to poke the bear and bring about revolution in the colonies. All the king had to do was sit back and enjoy his throne, but the sin nature was too much to resist. How else could you explain his unproductive meddling in American commerce? The framers of the Constitution invented a system of shared power with checks and balances to prevent any Napoleonic individual from becoming a dictator. And they did this before Napoleon made a name for bad dictatorship. The Christian Bible informed the framers of the Constitution how they needed to, be, to restrain evil. But modern politicians have rejected their wisdom. The moderns want the president to be a more dynamic leader who uses executive powers to do what he alone considers to be the moral imperative." Then they claim it is good when their party does it, but it's bad when the other party does it. They have traded constitutional restraints for arbitrary power. I trace this abuse of power to the fact that America's system of education no longer conveys these foundational American values to future generations. They teach neither spiritual principles or governing principles, Just as parents have a responsibility to train their children, nations and their institutions have a vested interest in teaching foundational principles to future generations of citizens, especially when a nation's principles produce excellent results for its people. It's the children who ultimately suffer as they lose the legacy of their national identity and the benefits bestowed on them from it. There was a debate in Springfield recently between atheists and Christians. Does Christianity have a positive or a negative influence in the world? Is Christianity good? There's no doubt that people claiming to be Christians don't always act in ways that reflect well on Jesus Christ. But what's the real deal? I suggest you go to the source. Here is what Jesus said. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is saying that real Christians are other-directed. We love others and want for them the same things we want for ourselves. If someone does deliberate harm to another, that person is not a follower of Christ. True followers of Jesus bless whoever they meet. The debate really isn't about whether Christ is good. It's really an open challenge for each of us to honor Jesus' reputation by reflecting his love for the world. Whenever worldviews are in conflict, advocates tend to see the other side as being evil. Uh, They don't just see the other side as being the other side or friendly competitors or somebody who has a point of view. They tend to look at the other side as being evil. And in this particular case, in this clip, I describe how there was a meeting in Springfield among atheists and they were asking the question about the goodness of Christianity in a facetious way. they were basically asking it in the spirit, you know, prove yourself, prove that you're good. Hasn't Christianity had all of these bad effects over the last 2,000 years? And one of the difficult things is that it has. There's no doubt about it. People were involved. And whenever people are involved in something, no matter how good the something is, there will be bad consequences from time to time, especially when people are wrapped up in anything ideological. So what this clip points out is that even though Christians, individual people, might have done wrong over time. You can't question the heart of Christianity. Uh, The great commandment in the New Testament is to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And that loving your neighbor as yourself is much deeper than just loving your neighbor a lot. It means that in the same way that you care for the consequences of life for yourself, you should care for the consequences of life for other people around you. And that's why, historically, Christians have been uh, what atheists might call do-gooders. We are wrapped up in doing, in doing good works. But, um, my wife was calling this to my attention recently, that before Jesus came into the world, there were all kinds of pagan cultures in the world. Uh, pagans who worshipped other gods, and those other gods weren't very helpful. They were demanding and uh, unkind and caused people to have to live according to all kinds of rules, and um, and there was considerable evil in the world. And then when Jesus came into the world, and through the grace of God, the Western world was Christianized. There was a tremendous blessing that was unleashed on the on the earth. Uh, there's a book called The Five Thousand Year Leap, that describes how. Christianity has brought so much progress to the world, more progress than in the previous 5,000 years of world history. Just think about what's happening in America. Even though we have people in America who think America has not done well enough, uh, the communists and the leftists and the socialists, even they would have to admit that there is just incomparable wealth in America and that wealth leads to comfort And that comfort leads to security and that security leads to peace, far more peace than other parts of the world have enjoyed. So we need to look through all of these ideological arguments through the lens of what we can observe, what is practical. And Christianity itself, regardless of the people who may have done bad, Christianity itself has had this profoundly beneficial effect on the earth among the peoples of the world and we continue to send out evangelists out into the world to take pagan cultures and try to reverse the process of of paganism. Unfortunately, now that as we enter the 21st century and atheism becomes stronger and people lose faith, we have a degradation of our Christian culture and we are reversing, we are reverting back to paganism, where mothers want to kill their unborn children just as they did in pagan cultures, and where men want to uh, be feminized and they want to become women or they want to engage in unspeakable acts with other men. Things that we don't really like to talk about especially since there's such a politically correct prohibition against talking honestly about things that aren't life-giving and aren't productive. So the world is kind of reverting back to this kind of pagan culture, and people in the Christian church are trying to re-educate the world, to bring them back to understanding the God of the Bible, And the great blessing that's been given by the God of the Bible to the people of the earth, if they're just willing to accept the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. To a great extent, that's what this worldview series has been about. It's been about taking, especially the biblical worldview, and applying it to where it meets reality. And wherever the biblical worldview meets reality, and affects reality, the world is a better place. That is my premise And as we move forward in um, the episodes of What Makes Sense, we're going to look at all the issues that are prominent today through the lens of Christian worldview and what makes sense for the people of the world for their benefit. Thanks for joining us today. Until next time, go out and do good. (laughs)